You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode one of the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Senior Content Manager for RSA Conference, and I am happy to be joined today by my co-host, Hugh Thompson, RSA Conference Program Committee Chair. Hey, Britta. How are you? This is our inaugural podcast. Exciting. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. We have got a terrific show for you, and we invite you to add this podcast to your favorite RSS feed or to iTunes so you never miss an episode. You'll feel guilty afterwards if you do. And you can follow RSAC on Absolutely. Twitter. Uh, the handle is, not surprisingly, at RSA Conference. Yeah, we're really creative with that handle. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's well done. At RSA Conference. So super, let's get into the show. Yeah, I'm so excited with our guests today. Uh, Leaders on the RSA Conference stage and in the industry. Um, Today we're talking policy and government regulations in information security. And we're joined by our guests, Bobby Stemfley and Jim Routh. Um, Bobby, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Bobby Stumpley. I run the CERT division at the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. So uh, remember way back in the good old days of the Morris Worm, we needed something to respond to it and CERT was created. Um, So we do exciting work in terms of studying and solving problems with widespread cybersecurity implications, really at the edge of R&D and implementation. Excellent. And Jim? Uh, I'm Jim Routh. I'm the Chief Security Officer for Aetna, and I also chair the National Health Information Sharing Analysis Center, or NHISAC. Uh, Been a part of security for the last 15 years. And interesting enough, I owe my security career exclusively to my wife. Uh, and let me tell you about why that is. See, I was in I was an IT geek for many years and decided that uh, I was doing consulting and uh, I had three kids and travel and consulting didn't quite work. So I, I knew I had to bite the bullet and go work for a corporation. So I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota and loved it there and uh, had a great job with American Express uh, working in IT. And after about three and a half years and three pretty harsh winters, my wife said to me at dinner one night, listen, the kids and I are moving back east. Would you like to come? Very subtle, very and subtle. And that's, uh, yeah. that's kind of when I realized, I was, yeah, yeah, I think I, I would like to go. So that forced me into, I was actually interviewing for a CIO job at the time, and I pulled out of that and said uh, to my sponsor in America's Best, a guy named Glenn Salo, I said, Glenn, get me out of here, you know, get me back to New York. Uh, so he said, all right, well, uh, we'll bring you back. We got a job for you, but it's in the business, not in IT. And I said, great, I'll do anything. I'll sweep the floors, whatever it takes. Uh, so I ended up uh, running data analytics for the consumer card business, and they and that was like marketing analytics. Uh, and then they combined that with risk uh, analytics. Uh, and so I reported to the chief risk officer, and it turns out around the same time, this is a long time ago, 15 years ago, uh, they were um, – looking for a CISO. Uh, They hadn't had a CISO before. They didn't quite know, I think, what to look for. So they said, well, this guy knows IT, knows the business, and he reports to the chief risk officer what can go wrong, make him the CISO. So that's how I actually started in security 15 years ago. And if it wasn't for my wife, it never would happen. That is actually a really cool story. And and I, I... 
Yeah, I, I wish I could see our listeners right now and your raise of hands and have them share their migratory path here because I love the fact you kind of touched all the pieces of the business, all the pieces of you know trying to understand it all, and then arriving at that security door. And as as a fellow wife who's had the exact same conversation with her husband, I hail your wife, um, wise woman. Um, so that is that 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 path is interesting and and helps me understand yeah, you, why you, you've innovated you know, in all these ways. So what's thank so you. interesting thank about you. that, Jim, too, is it reminds us how young this discipline really is. You know, for, for a lot of us, I think they've been in it for a while. It feels like it's been going on for a long time. But if you look at the age of the information security business compared to, to our peers in places like uh, Madison, for example, we're a, we're a very young industry that's been forced to grow mm. up very, very quickly. That's for sure. Exactly. Which actually leads me to the first question I'd love to um, direct to you, Bobby, um, which is in and around the cybersecurity framework. Um, really interesting framework. Um, we're now in version two, correct? Uh, I it, yes. yes. Yes, we are. And I know we, we've had sessions on this at RSA conference the last couple of years, and it's interesting because we have, we're turning people away at the door. For those, for those sessions, which clearly we need more sessions. Um, so people being asked to take, understand it, do something with it. And we really do have quite a bit of work within the industry of people um, taking and, and doing things with it. We know, as, as, um, as Hugh just alluded, our industry is changing by the second. There's a tax happening, you know, left, right, center. Um, and yet we have this framework that's been out for a couple of years and we're at version two. Does, does the spat of attacks, the ongoing pressure that we're under in industry, change any of your thinking about the cybersecurity framework, which I know you, um, you were very instrumental in its early days? Actually, what I what I think the current set of environment, the current environment does is reinforce the need for it. We are a, a young industry. And one of the challenges that we've had is everybody has talked about it in a different way. We, we not only have the language problems that exist between security professionals and non-security professionals or uh, CIOs and business or security and business, even within the security domain, it's hard for us to really think about how to parse these problems in ways that we can have a consistent conversation about them. And the cybersecurity framework did that. It put together business people, it put together uh, security individuals, it put together government and said, okay, we're going to build a lexicon that we can all organize around so that we can start burning down the challenges in each of these areas um, in a way that we can repeat and communicate over. So I'm thrilled that not only has it come out, but it has had such attention that NIST has had to do a second community engagement in order to evolve it. Um, so I think it's a, a really powerful tool uh, in that way. You know, Jim, let me ask you, based on based on Bobby's comments, it is great to see such a coalescence around the cybersecurity framework. I think the executive order doubled down on that for, from a government perspective, but we're seeing it pop up everywhere in industry. You have that happening on one side, and then on the other side, we're in this 
period of just massive regulatory volatility. GDPR is quickly upon us, right? That May date of next year and the 4% of turnover penalty, I think, is, uh, is on a lot of people's minds. There's so much change from a regulatory perspective that's going on in Europe and Asia, changes at the state level. How do you keep up with all of that change, and how do you think about that operationally? Yeah, I think a um, couple of points. Number one, the cybersecurity framework, um, I think, is one of the best uh, examples of uh, both collaboration as well as a significant contributing factor to resiliency across industries um, in the history, <laughs> and albeit maybe a short, shorter history uh, in terms of cybersecurity, Hugh, but... Uh, in our history, it's been it's been one of the uh, I think real positive things to come out. And I'm a big uh, supporter and advocate of uh, the framework we use it uh, today. Uh, and it's uh, it's a foundational component. But most importantly, I think it really raises the level of resiliency across industries uh, and across diversity of uh, of sectors. Uh, both small, medium, and sized organizations can uh, derive benefit from that. Uh, and uh, and improve uh, resiliency. Um, there's two notions that I want to introduce uh, to answer your question. The first uh, is that um, a framework, in this case, a cybersecurity framework, is different from standards and uh, different in some respects from uh, our foundational underpinning for security, which is largely around conventional controls, conventional controls or controls that you can find in a standard or uh, a, a reference uh, through linked to an authoritative source. Um, and when I started in security 15 years ago, one of the first things that I had to do, uh, I noticed uh, my first day in office, uh, on my second day in my calendar, I had to present the security strategy to the OCC. And the OCC is pretty, uh, pretty competent when it comes to security capability. Uh, so I realized that was kind of in over my head. And fortunately, I had a piece of paper in my pocket with a name and phone number on it. And a friend of mine who's in security had given this to me when he heard me. I got this position. He said, look, when you get in over your head, call this number. And it was my first day that I realized that I was in <laughs> over my head when I saw this meeting of the OCC. So I called this number. It turns out uh, Steve Katz, you know, one of the, the first CISO ever. Uh, and, I, and he was doing some consulting. I said, Steve, you know, I'm a new CISO at American Express. My first day on my second day, I got to do this meeting. I have no idea how to prepare for this presentation with the OCC. And I need some help. I'm kind of deep. And he's like, I'll be right there. And um, I said, well, let me give you directions. And he would already hung up. Um, sure enough, 45 minutes, 45 minutes later, he shows wow, up. He's man. got two CISOs, acting CISOs of competitor firms to American Express. All three of them walk in the door. They brush past me and they say, all right, what's your... Uh, What's your password on your workstation? We got to get on here to create this presentation. And I said, "Is this a test? You know, you ask it for my password." So he said, "No, just put your password in." We're, I'm driving, so uh, this was one of the CISOs was, was driving. So he literally they, they pushed me aside. They looked at all the papers on my desk, and I had all these papers from the, there are four different security functions in. American Express, we're all bringing together, and I had all this documentation, policies, and all this stuff. They put it all together, and they basically said, all right, here's your presentation. After about an, an hour of the three of them doing collective, collaborative work, 
they had a presentation ready and they basically turned it over to me and said, now you give this presentation to us, we'll pretend we're the OCC, we'll role play and, uh, and, and we'll give you some you know, criticism and feedback. And it was, it was kind of rough, uh, but they gave me interactive feedback. I basically spit out exactly what they told me. They prepared the slides and the speaking notes and everything and, and, and turned it over to me. And the next day, uh, they, they were there at like six o'clock at night helping me. And after they said, you know, you'll be fine. See you later. Bye. The next day I walk in, give the presentation, and it was flawless. And um, the reason that they were able to do that is they were following a formula. And the formula was a very simple formula. Pick a risk framework and set of standards. Um, align the business and IT delivery capabilities with the policies and the control standards uh, embedded within that risk framework. Uh, and then get a third party to attest to the effectiveness of those controls and produce that information. And essentially, that's the plan that I presented to the OCC. Uh, and that was the foundation and the formula for resiliency for an enterprise in security. And, you know, all stakeholder groups bought into that. You know, the privacy people bought into that. The, uh, the auditors uh, bought into that. The regulators bought into that. Uh, the IT people bought into that. The board bought into that. And all the key stakeholders bought into that, except for one. There was one stakeholder group that didn't quite buy into that uh, framework and set of standards uh, and process or formula, and that was the threat adversaries, the bad guys, the criminals. They didn't buy into that. <laughs> <laughs> They're always slow adopters on the standards. I don't know what it is. Well, and they get quite the vote. They do. And so the reality is that <laughs> conventional controls with manifest themselves in standards today are essential on the critical path, but are wholly insufficient for enterprise level resiliency today. Because uh, I'll give you a couple examples, but essentially the difference between conventional controls and unconventional controls are the authoritative sources that are linked to them. So today, the number one threat in threat vector in cybersecurity is overwhelmingly everybody knows it's, it's phishing, right? And if you look at the authoritative sources, any authoritative source, they will tell you that the number one mitigant for phishing is education. Um, now, if we really think about it, stop and think about what we're doing in educating our end users not to trust email, is maybe what we're doing is not necessarily sustainable. And what I mean by that, if you remove trust from an email system and you remove email from an enterprise, you have an enterprise that's not going to survive for a very long period of time. So I'm not sure the current wisdom, conventional wisdom, is actually aligned with a sustainable model. So an alternative would be to design unconventional controls. They don't, they're not linked to a risk framework anywhere. And, um, and, and apply those to the uh, risk here and see how we can manage that. Well, it turns out that for outbound email, if we use DMARC, which is a, a standard in of itself, but we use that and publish our DMARC records to the ISPs, it turns out that everybody receiving emails from our respective domain will only get emails from our domain. We won't get emails saying we're from our domain that aren't from our domain. So spoofing of a domain is no longer possible. It's, it's the most commonly used technique for a phishing attack. And we can essentially eliminate it by using DMARC. Now, DMARC's an unconventional control. It's not linked to a control framework anywhere. It's, it's unconventional. I'll give you another example. On the inbound side, protecting an enterprise, if we eliminate emails, we don't deliver emails from every newly registered domain, 
that in of itself blocks a lot of spam and uh, the majority of spam and phishing emails. Um, now that's a, a unconventional control, and you won't find that referenced anywhere. But it's highly effective, uh, and it doesn't cost a lot to implement. My point is that resiliency today has more to do with our ability to evolve controls than it is to establish and implement a standard set of control objectives. That's a place that's on the critical path, but it's not the end game. When I you know, uh, learned security 15 years ago from Steve, that was the end game. Uh, but today, um, it really isn't. It really, um, it, it, we require innovation in the control design that's not necessarily going to come from uh, uh, regulatory frameworks, and it's certainly not going to come from the legislation process, uh, which is, can't keep up with the pace of the change in threat actor tactics. Uh, so at the end of the day, I'm trying to keep my wife happy. Um, that's really all I'm trying to do. Like, I love working with you guys. Hugh, I love, you know, working with you. You're fun and you're oh, exciting. Thanks, man. Really, Same here. But, but at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is keep my wife happy. And that means <laughs> that I have to change controls on a regular basis. Uh, we're changing controls on average once a day. That's what our enterprise does on average and has been like that for the last three years. And I think, frankly, changing controls and using unconventional controls is a better indicator of resiliency to the enterprise um, than using conventional controls. So, what I'm, uh, Jim, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this, we've been working with this concept called prosilience, which is resilience with the concept of being conscious of your environment, being aware of yourself, and being capable of evolving in a rapid manner. Um, and so it's really interesting how these two ideas come together really effectively. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah. I thought it was going to be Prozac, but it's not Prozac. It's Prozac. No, no, no. I like no. it. That's very good. <laughs> not a lot of uh, calm in, uh, in our line of business, is there? Um, but, but I think the... One of the questions I used to get a lot when I was in government was, what keeps you up at night? That's like everybody's favorite throwaway question, because um, they're hoping you'll say something really embarrassing. But one of the things that has always kept me up at night, um, and, and still does to this, uh, to this day, is an, our ability to be agile. Right. The more we crystallize organizational processes in technology and lose the talent that put the technology together, the more we crystallize the kinds of controls that have to be put in place and stop thinking about why, the less agile we are in, in response to the change in the environment and the adversary. And we really have to be able to cultivate that concept of agility yeah but yeah Bobby, I, I love how you frame that up too because I, I think you're right when folks think about the words legislation or requirements or new standards they think about being controlled or maybe stifled or here's you know the auditor is going to come and check these things and thus i have to do them and, and I'm curious, you know, as someone who's been involved in these massive standards efforts like CSF, how do you strike that balance? Because on the one hand, you want to codify what you think are best practices, minimum controls, you know, things that are very specific to rise all boats. 
But then on the other hand, you want to enable exactly the stuff that Jim's talking about. You want to enable folks to have diversity in their controls and change and you know, really entrepreneurialism, I guess, is almost a way to kind of describe the way that, that, that Jim was talking about. How do you think about that in, these, in the context of these massive control frameworks? Yeah, so the several things happen, and, and it's just, I think, human nature, unfortunately, is whenever you put a framework out there and you intend it to be the floor, for many people it becomes the ceiling. Yeah, good point. Um, and you really have to think through what that looks like as you're building these, uh, as you're building these activities. Um, and that's, I, the more we can communicate things like the framework is not... Uh, is not a regulatory item, right? It is a voluntary adoption starting point for conversation and adaptation for your environment. Um, Which is its best attribute, by the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, really thinking about it from that position. And I think we're in this journey in the security community of helping people see the difference between the things that are done for compliance reasons because it takes the silly stuff off the table and the things that need to be done that, that where the innovation needs to be put in place and needs to be thought through. Um, and so it takes a lot of very thoughtful people a really long time, unfortunately, to come up with the best balance. Um, but you've got to have the thought uh, in that discussion. Yeah. Well, and that, that journey that you refer to really harkens back, um, Jim, as you were talking about day one on the job and that, that great group of people, including competitors, showing up at your door, the community that we are as an industry, the willingness to share experience, the willingness to share best practices, the willingness to share challenges, perhaps, that we have that we have. Um, Encountered, and I know Jim. You know, to that end, you have been so um, involved with many different industry groups. Um, you, you've you've really pioneered a lot of good information sharing, policy guidance, and other activity to really you know which which are hallmarks of a good community. What is the balance that you see between um, this this industry activity, which is often industry self governance? And government guidance. Yeah, there is. Um, I, I'd say first of all, you need both, and both are essential, and both are more related to each other than conventional wisdom might uh, suggest. Um, and so, what I mean by that is, when uh, when we're responsible for enterprise resilience, and there's an event, any kind of event, the number one question is always: Is this event targeting our enterprise, or is it targeting the entire industry? And, you know, the best way to answer that question is to have vehicles to reach out and understand what the industry is experiencing and whether the industry is, is experiencing this specific event. And if so, what's working and what's not working? And so um, that fundamental question, which needs to be answered, um, relies on a community. And the community in the industry should not be... Um, totally separate from the community uh, in the regulator or in the federal government, for as an example, or state or local government. They, they should be one and the same because the infrastructure overlaps. So essentially, um, we should uh, have vehicles in place at both the operational level, like an ISAC, 
to interact with uh, the emergency response and preparation resources that are available, both at the federal, state, and local level, as well as at the policy level for sector coordinating uh, across industry sectors where policymaking and sector direction are intertwined and influenced by each other. So um, bringing both ingredients together in the community makes for a much more resilient community overall and helps us answer those fundamental and basic questions. Uh, and frankly, if I had my druthers, which by the way, my wife has explained this to me many times, I don't, um, but, but if I did, um, I would say from a policy and from a regulatory perspective, consistency is uh, the hallmark. Uh, in other words, having predictable outcomes from a policy perspective is the desired outcome, regardless of the rigor associated with the policy, having uh, predictable uh, outcomes. Um, I would venture a guess, it's just a guess, but uh, um, uh, the, today in Washington, uh, we don't have predictability. Is that, it's just a guess. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Uh, I'd say that's a reasonable assessment. I'm pleading the <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I'd like to see a little bit more predictability uh, in terms of our, our policymaking, but I think policymaking <laughs> is still important. But I think, Jim, the interesting thing about that is uh, what we're all looking for is that predictability in the outcome. Mm. And we translate that for ease's sake many times to predictability in the method. Mm. And, and that turns into, that's where we start to crystallize in, a, in frames that become very difficult for us to operate in. Because we say, here's a path we know under a set of, of understandable circumstances to achieve that outcome. Now I want to recreate everywhere or in as many places as possible that set of circumstances and that path. And that's not what we're, we're striving for, right? We are striving for predictability in that outcome. Well said. Yeah, you know it's 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 interesting how you frame that up, Bob. Because and I'm curious to get both of your views on this. There are so many areas of security and I guess even safety that you'd look at them and you'd say, okay, maybe this is the place that government needs to jump in and potentially regulate. And I know that that's, that's had, had mixed success over the years, right? I, I think about examples, um, you know, personally witnessed like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act kind of on one side. Uh, and then uh, I'd say uh, another great example is this executive order, which doubles down on something that folks really already have feedback, which is a cybersecurity framework. So to me, those are those are two opposite ends of the spectrum. But I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on when does government or when should government think about stepping in from a regulatory perspective? I think about things like IoT security, for example. Yeah, you want me to go first? Um, so my view is that... Um, uh, uh, let's use IoT as, a, as an example. Um, there's um, a number of things that are fundamentally changing and, and uh, changing in terms of uh, enterprises, changing in terms of the private sector, uh, changes in terms of uh, the proliferation of uh, technology in the consumer world that's uh, 
heavily influenced today that um, that impacts all of us from a security and privacy perspective. Recognizing that the technology is so far ahead of our security controls and our privacy tolerance um, that that's a constant uh, challenge that we have balancing convenience as a consumer with uh, functionality and opportunity uh, with privacy and security. Uh, and w- the reality is history has shown that you know functionality is going to lead, controls are going to lag. Um, and so that's a, that's a point where the government has an opportunity uh, to introduce a st- you know starting point around regulation that can uh, pro- provide some predictable standard uh, baseline. Um, but uh, the one thing to be concerned about is, frankly, there is no government agency that's equipped to solve the IoT problem today. Um, there, there are there's no easy, simple. Uh, answers, both from a policy-making perspective as well as from a technology perspective. So there's a role to play, but it's a light touch to influence the evolution and basically influence the right behaviors in the private sector. Because the reality is that um, it's economically viable for every entity that creates technology to remove defects from that technology, because in the long term, it's, it's an improved economic position for them and for the industry. Now, convincing of, of that fact um, is where it's really challenging. Um, and frank, frankly, the cybersecurity framework takes a step towards that. Um, and, and I think government can, through policies, nudge that in the right direction. But they can't universally mandate a solution for IoT uh, it's far too comprehensive and, and challenging and changing too rapidly. And that's really not a space that regulation plays particularly well in when there's a lot of flux and change. So that's my view. Yeah, I think one of the when you look at the things that that work really well on the network, they have a regulatory model, whether it be technology, the standard itself is regulating the behavior or something else, something of that sort. I think the real challenge that we have in all of these dimensions is picking the right engagement strategy for the challenge. Safety is something we've long picked as, as a, a place where governments, whether it be state or local, need to be involved in, in some way. I agree with you, Jim. Getting the defects out of the code um, would be huge in terms of changing the landscape, really closing that aperture for the adversary to take advantage of. Um, and so there are, there are lots of options for how to do that. Um, the best question I think we all have to fight is how do you do that and reinforce the economic value and economic engine that all of this technology provides. But it is moving very quickly. I want to follow up on that a little bit with you, Bobby. Um, so you have some good Excellent government um, experience and perspective. What what guidance would you give to our listeners on best practices for for industry groups or even individual companies to engage with the government policy setting groups? How do we how do we get to that best experience that we've been talking about? We've 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 cited some bad experiences, um, but some best experiences. How do we have a positive experience? And, and I love that CSF keeps being hearkened back to with, with some good experience, which we're certainly hearing from our RSA conference attendees as well. 
Yeah, so I think um, I think Jim brought up a couple of really useful discussions and dialogues that 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 are in place. Um, Getting involved with your sector coordinating council from whatever sector uh, of industry that you're in, getting involved with your sector coordinating council can be a really powerful way of both hearing and having a voice in in the discussion because that's where the policy dialogue is going on that's appropriate for that uh, for that sector or the cross-sector uh, d- discussions that are there. Um, I know that at, uh, at state and local levels, there are a range of different opportunities for engagement, whether it be through your uh, local chamber or through um, your Homeland Security advisor in, in a particular state. But these are the open forums for these kinds of discussions. And one of the things I really appreciate about uh, the work that we've all been doing as a community is we've tried to say there are there are apparatus and, and organizations out there, and it's best to leverage the ones that work for a particular industry instead of saying, oh, we're going to create a whole nother one um, that that exists. So the information sharing and analysis centers and information sharing and analysis organizations uh, work in concert to build dialogue around not just threat sharing, but policy discussions, sector coordinating councils, trade associations, other mechanisms that are appropriate for particular industries. Um, and so those are the most powerful ways to, to engage, not to create a new one or to create one that, uh, uh, or, or to try to, uh, um, build something from, um, uh, from ground zero. I'd like to give a example of what Bobby, uh, just described, um, kind of real world example that, uh, is, uh, relatively, uh, recent, and that was WannaCry. Uh, and uh, when WannaCry first uh, was released uh, in terms of the initial reports of uh, its spread uh, and the potential impact and the business disruption, uh, specifically in the UK, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about it, but there was a lot of interest uh, in what the potential impact would be, uh, certainly in the US through inter- uh, uh, enterprises. Uh, and the NHISAC TIC, Threat Intel Committee, uh, decided to share resources, collective resources, to understand what the impact would be for the healthcare sector in the U.S. And so um, there were 70 engineers doing malware analysis on five different samples of the uh, WannaCry malware, working simultaneously across um, different infrastructures using a chat capability um, that connected everyone in real time to understand how the threat vector uh, responded or reacted uh, with this malware, specifically what the threat vectors were. And what we learned is that the initial reports that said it was being spread through email was wrong, uh, and that uh, focusing on that was actually wrong for, uh, for, for the enterprise. And it turns out that there were four controls that can be implemented to mitigate the spread of, uh, of the malware. Uh, and we immediately got um, that information published and out to the industry, the healthcare industry. Um, and the interesting thing is I have two really top cyber hunters that uh, are, you know, have world-class skill in, uh, in malware analysis, but I got to leverage 70 of them across 
uh, 55 different organizations that decided to pool resources and work collaboratively together. Uh, and within a matter of hours, we understood what the threat vector was. We understood what the IOCs were, and we understood what the recommended controls were to mitigate the spread. Um, I didn't realize at the time that two weeks later, we would have an opportunity to do the exact same thing again with Petya. Uh, and sure enough, with Petya, we understood that the only way to spread that was through the MEDOC uh, application uh, as a threat vector, again, contradicting early reports that said it spread uh, through, uh, through other threat vectors. And so um, this, th these were classic examples, in my mind, where industry resiliency, and in fact, in this case, um, as part of the, the TIC, the Threat Intel Committee, we were using the uh, Health and Human Services HKIC that they set up for emergency response, and they were part of the collaboration working in real time so that we can get the, in the information out uh, through them to the rest of the sector at the same time. So um, in times of crisis, you know, uh, lots of uh, lots of people come together. Uh, and in this case, uh, the mechanisms, as Bobby was describing, the mechanisms work really well. Uh, and that really tremendously improves industry resiliency. I think the important thing there is you leveraged a set of existing relationships, right? You yeah. worked, you had conversations about policy, about sharing previously that helped you build the trust uh, to to be able to act in a collaborative and more cohesive manner. And I think that's the that's the end game. And it doesn't happen if you started in the crisis, um, just like all other events, you have to sort of start building those relationships before the crisis occurs. Exactly right. And so I, I've got a, a closing question to ask, and and I love those those stories around around Wanna Cry and Petya. I think there's so many great examples of of the industry coming together, end users coming together, and you know I think about the tail end of those incidents. And then the discussion that has to be had with the board of directors. And, and Jim, specifically, I wanted to ask you this question while we had you. Uh, you're one of the folks in this industry that folks really look up to. I mean, you've been in, in this space for a long time. You've been seen as a pioneer, as an innovator. Britta and I meticulously track metrics at RSA conference, and you're uh, often among the highest rated speakers at the conference. And so I, I got to ask you, how would you counsel the folks that are listening to this call that are that are maybe in that CISO role that are more exposed to the board today than they ever have before how should they think about communicating risk or an incident like patia or want to cry to the board what's a what's a, just a good mental framework for them yeah so uh, that's a, a great question and um, uh, my perspective is might be <laughs> Might be a little controversial, but uh, hey, what the heck? Uh, I'm going to go for it. Which is, uh, never ever try to explain risk to your board. Um, it's a it's a it's a bottomless pit, endless hole, uh, dark hole. D don't go down that path. Uh, avoid it at all costs. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, but um, the, what I'm suggesting is very simple. Number one, cybersecurity is the number one issue for every board today. All right. 
So just it, it, that's a given. You'll I mean, that you know they're interested in and they have an appetite for it. Number two, they don't speak the language of risk, specifically not cybersecurity risk. And teaching them that language, let's just say that that's not necessarily going to be something that's in your long-term best interest because it takes a long time. Um, so the third thing is is speak the language of business, um, which is uh, dollars in terms of costs and total cost of ownership and um, an opportunity for increasing profit or reducing oper- operating costs uh, through uh, reducing the total cost of ownership of IT. Though that using that language is something that they can understand, that they're accustomed to it, they're, it's normal, uh, and you won't get in any trouble. The, the, the last point is that there's a formula for talking about incidents um, that serves up the right level of information to even an audience that's not sophisticated with cybersecurity. Start with facts and choose the facts that are relevant and easy to understand. Uh, then talk about business impact uh, to the enterprise. Uh, then talk about the root cause, what caused the incident or what's the, what's the root cause that's uh, identified. Uh, and then the corrective actions that were taken uh, with a timeline. And the last and the most important is what lessons did we learn from the incident? Because whether it's an industry-wide incident like WannaCry or Petya, or whether it's an enterprise incident uh, itself, you as the CISO should be celebrating the incident because it's a wonderful opportunity to learn which controls worked and which controls didn't work and where you want to make adjustments in the allocation of resources to your highest risks going forward. And incidents, as much as we, um, you know, there's pain associated with that and business disruption that comes with incidents. Uh, we don't want to embrace that necessarily uh, in terms of the result, but we do want to celebrate the fact that we can learn from incidents. Um, and, and sometimes that's one organization learning from another organization's challenges with a particular incident. Uh, in some cases, that's within our own environment, but it's a wonderful opportunity to learn what adjustments to make going forward. And we've already talked about, Bobby mentioned this, and uh, Hugh, you mentioned this. I mean, the industry is changing both from a regulatory perspective as well as the threat landscape uh, evolving uh, quickly. So constant adjustment and changing controls is absolutely necessary. And incidents are, you know, like it or not, they're on the journey of learning where to allocate and reallocate resources to the highest risks. And that's, at the end of the day, that's what we do. And that's what the board wants to make sure that we do. Uh, and so that's a way of communicating that. Is that is that helpful? Oh, it's great. I think I think that's great. That actually mirrors. We had a conversation. I moderated a panel last week at RSA conference APJ, and I just pulled out my notes. And, and one of the speakers we were talking about this was specifically about ransomware and how to engage with the board and help them understand impact. And the three things that I wrote down that this speaker shared: the board cares about you know how does this impact revenue. Um, what regulatory and reputational impact will this affect us with, and what are industry best practices? So I think it's a, yeah, it's that language of the board and helping them understand in, in terms they understand. Um, this this has been a great this has been a great conversation. Um, some keywords, some takeaways that I have. 
controls, that C word, that C word crept into just about every single answer, the importance of controls, um, the importance of appropriate engagement, which Bobby, like you talked about, make sure that, you know, you have those relationships before the crisis, um, predictable outcomes. We talked a lot about that that's the end game goal um, from the policy perspective as well as the company perspective. Prozillions, that's a cool word. Bobby wrote that one down. It's a new one in my, in my vocabulary. It is a cool word. Um, it is a really cool word. Uh, Let's get the domain yeah. name. Uh, well, <laughs> right, Look, I write on trademarking. <laughs> Industry resiliency. That's a word. Hugh and I actually were having that conversation last week, too, that that's one that's really creeping into our vernacular more and more is, you know, what is resiliency? What does it mean? And you all gave some great examples today. And then it all boiled down to community which is, you know, it, it's what we serve, it's what we're all about, it's our passion at RSA Conference is this, is this growing um, security community and this, this larger ecosystem. So um, thank you so very much for being here with us today, Bobby and Jim. Um, your perspectives are really valuable. Um, I, I loved the back and forth you had. I do know, Hugh, I have identified, you'll be excited, I have identified our next guest for our next podcast during this session. Wow, Britta, will you reveal it or will you leave it as a cliffhanger? It's Jim's wife. She knows everything. She knows everything. At the end of the day, it all goes back to controls and Jim's wife. And I will leave it at that. Thank you, guests. Thank you, listeners. Um, we look forward to tuning in with you next time with our RSA Conference podcast. <laughs>